at Large. I'm Lyndon Lopate. Lawrence R. Jacobs is founder and director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance and holds the Walter F. and Joan Mondale Chair for Political Studies at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. In his new book, he lays out a history of political reform since the late 18th century that, over time, has weakened democracy, widened political inequality and racial disparities, and has rewarded political polarization. The book, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History, is published by Oxford University Press and brings Dr. Jacobs to our show now. Welcome. How are you? Okay. People might assume, based on your book's title and the art on its jacket, that it's a critique of Donald Trump's presidency, but aren't you arguing that his ascendance is the culmination of nearly 250 years of political reforms that go all the way back to the earliest days of our nation? Yes. In fact, um, I feel like there's been so much written about Donald Trump as a personality and there are excellent books out there about the presidency and more coming. What we didn't have is an understanding of where did he come from and uh, how do we think about that in a way that is not personalistic? It's not about Donald Trump's quips and um, his peculiar racist, sexist um, conduct but really looks at the history of America. The indictment that I make in this book is I think uh, more searing um, and the conclusion more dire than um, simply looking at Trump as an aberration. So let's go back to the beginning. There were no political parties at first. Was that what most of the founders would have preferred? And um, how soon did that change? And If anybody uh, in the audience has seen Hamilton, how accurate is its depiction of what happened at the time? Yeah, those are all great questions. You know, if you look at the period before um, the declaration, it was largely an aristocracy. It was run by a fairly small gentry. Uh, There was uh, the ability of uh, some uh, to vote, but most didn't. They just deferred to the gentry uh, um, who, you know, owned land, owned um, uh, uh, shipping. Um, they were the folks who controlled. It was really a power elite um, in that colonial period. And then the Declaration, which was like a, an explosion. It created this moment of democratic magic. It had words like you know, all men are created equal. Um, It talked about unalienable rights and consent to the governed. And in the states, which were the the primary governing uh, uh, sites at that time, all of a sudden you had farmers and laborers uh, taking that seriously. And they started to run for office and win. Uh, They went into office and the folks who had organized to get them into office drew up what were known as instructions. We elected you, you will do this. And the agenda was quite progressive in terms of economic redistribution, uh, lowering taxes, uh, which had been crushing on farmers and laborers uh, to pay off the, uh, the war, and printing money to um, undercut the value of the debt that was held by many of those uh, workers. And that passed. It passed in a lot of states. That was what um, freaked out James Madison and others who were in the gentry. And so the Constitutional Convention 
doesn't really follow the the kind of heroic story that you you see in Hamilton. It was really a counter-revolution. It was an effort to roll back what they saw as excessive democracy and to stop citizens from pursuing this, what was thought of as a kind of Robin Hood uh, agenda. What uh, did, that's, the, that's the context. What did James Madison do to create what you term a stronger conservative counter-revolution? Well, first off, he created a national government. And the national government was meant, in Madison's view, to uh, uh, put guardrails around the states, prevent them from printing money, which is in the Constitution, uh, prevent the, um, the, uh, the economic progressive agenda that you'd seen emerging in the states. And so the Constitution declares the federal government the supreme power of the land. Um, it creates... Um, a standing army, which was uh, intended to put down revolts if they emerged and the states couldn't handle it. But Madison uh, eventually was caught up in um, a dynamic in which he had to start considering, could the Constitution that was being drawn up in 1787 in Philadelphia be ratified? And that required popular vote. And so there was a coalition saying, yes, we're going to do this counter-revolution, but we have to include and respond to the expectations of these newly engaged citizens. And that led to the creation of um, elections and this idea of representative democracy. But Madison didn't like it. He, like, for instance, one of the things Madison wanted, could not get, was a federal government to have a veto on legislation passed by the states. He still feared those states and the power of citizens in them. Um, and so Madison puts together this system that has uh, checks on uh, popular participation. He has uh, a very well-structured um, or fairly well-structured set of procedures to channel um, the popular participation through elections. The Electoral College was meant to be a filter. The um, uh, selection of state senators, of U.S. senators, by state legislatures, that was another check, um, and all of that was, you know, very carefully thought through and intentional as a way to put a block on citizen organizing and economic progressive agendas. Uh, it, so the aim uh, in the, the creation of Constitutional Convention 1787 was, as you write, to contain excessive democracy. Yeah, it was a counter-revolution. It was really meant to put a hold and a stop on this extraordinary explosion of democracy for all of our, our worries and, and kind of trembling about American democracy, there are moments of, of real hope and magic. And the 1770s and 80s were one of those moments. It's why Madison you know, got so engaged in, in pulling off this, what was essentially a, a fairly cl clandestine effort the Constitutional Convention was never meant to draw up a new constitution. It was never meant to create this new national government as a supreme power in the land. The states, which authorized the Constitutional Conventions, fully expected to continue to be the center of political life. That did not happen. Now, you mentioned that uh, Thomas Jefferson declared that all men are created equal, but it's often pointed out that he was a slave owner. And mm -hmm. you say... 
both he and Andrew Jackson were misogynists. Yeah, you know, if you uh, look at this period, it's it's rife with um, sexism and racism of, um, you know, really extraordinary proportions. Um, Andrew Jackson, who would be elected president in 1828, was a murderer. He led and killed um, many Native Americans. Um, the Trail of Tears is, you know, in part a result of Andrew Jackson. He defied his superiors. Um, and when he became was elected president, there was real fear and trembling in Washington about what this renegade uh, would end up doing. Now, you mentioned the uh, creation of the Electoral College and the way that senators were selected, which was originally by state legislatures. A number of men have been elected president despite not receiving a majority of the votes. Um, isn't that undemocratic? Again, let's go back to James Madison. He did not want to see popular majorities uh, having a full sway. The Electoral College was meant to be a check on, on majority rule. That was the intention of it. It has not worked out, though, the way Madison hoped. Madison hoped that the electors who he expected to be the better educated, the better sorts, essentially the gentry. Landowners. Landowners, right. Um, the aristocracy that existed in America. He expected them to exercise judgment, sit in judgment of what the electorate had uh, decided. That has not happened. Um, uh, we, you know, we have a, a system where um, states, with some exceptions, largely follow the popular vote. Um, and then we have situations that, um, you know, where we've had uh, presidents elected without majorities. And mm-hmm. um, we've had a number of um, occasions where we've come very close to that, such as 2020, when Donald Trump came very close to winning the Electoral College vote, even though uh, Joe Biden had millions and millions more popular vote. Well, he he got the Electoral College vote in uh, the previous election, despite the fact that he lost the popular vote. Right. That's what I'm saying. This mm-hmm. is this aberration, as we see it today, was intentional, um, though the intent was more about sitting in judgment of the popular, um, the, the popular opinion. Today, it's um, you know happenstance of of where uh, electors reside and the size of the states and the disproportionate uh, power of small, medium-sized states. Hasn't the Constitution restrained some presidents from abusing their power? It has. Um, And I would say, uh, you know, generally the history of our country has shown um, the uh, effect of a Constitution that was designed by Madison to restrain the governing elite. Um, The the title of the book is Democracy Under Fire, colon, uh, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American history. And the breaking part is that Donald Trump um, you know, really tested those uh, restraints that Madison and generations of presidents and other uh, folks in government had, um, had followed. Um, he also defied the tradition that gone back to the 1800s of the, of the presidential candidate who lost peacefully and quietly leaving office. Well, um, he had actually that, he had actually warned 
us of his intention in the previous election when he said that he, if, if Hillary Clinton uh, got uh, the majority of the vote and uh, won the Electoral College, that he wouldn't necessarily accept that. Right. And, you know, I think one of the extraordinary um, uh, features of Trump's election in 2016, nomination and election in 2016, is his conduct was well telegraphed. As you said, that's one example where he, where uh, Donald Trump candidate made it clear that he would not um, respect the outcome. Um, and the question is, how did Donald Trump become the nominee of the Republican Party, even though virtually all the major Republican leaders considered him unfit for office and said so publicly, but they had no power to stop his nomination. And that, that to me is really the dire consequence of a series of reforms over the last century. My guest is Lawrence R. Jacobs, whose book, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History, is published by Oxford University Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and uh, streaming live at WBAI.org. As you point out, a number of prominent Republicans repudiated Trump as unfit for the GOP nomination, but you argue that his rise was a predictable product of a presidential nominating process that, quote, sidelined party officials and senior officials and deferred to a relatively small number of ideological motivated party activists, interest groups, and donors. Now, this is one of our challenges at this moment. We've got a nomination process, which many consider democratic and which the candidates hold up to the standard of what they call democracy, but it's not. Our primary system is dominated by a very small number. Turnout among Republicans and Democrats is between a quarter and a third in presidential election years. It's about half that in midterm elections years, such as this year. And you say and that saying, minorities are, are even more underrepresented. Exactly. We see participation by uh, people of color and indigenous to be lower than the, that of, of whites. So this is a system that is profoundly unequal. It's really giving voice to a small number. And that small number are not representative of the country. They tend to be quite ideological, particularly in the Republican Party. Uh, where they are pushing an agenda and it explains why it is that we are seeing Donald Trump even now pursuing this lie that the 2020 election was stolen and so many Republicans in office defer to that. Why is that happening? Well, it's happening because of the small number of ideologues in the Republican Party who control the nomination. And, you know, it's basically a fact of life um, for those in office. If you don't follow the uh, wishes of the party activists and the donors, you're likely to face a significant primary challenge and defeat. Well, despite the misgivings uh, many leading Republicans had about Trump when he was a candidate, why did their party nominate him as a presidential candidate in 2016 and then stand by him during the next four years and, and largely stand by him even now? 
people who were critical of him in the past, like Mitch McConnell. What was the alternative? So that's what we've come to right now, that it's it's a matter of there being no alternative? Well, there's... in, in terms of the 2016 nomination, there is no republic, there is no party to say no. Because the primary is dominant, it decides who the nominee will be. Once Donald Trump, um, in a very crowded um, primary, in which he won only a third of the primary vote, once he was able to corner enough delegates to win the nomination, there was nothing that the party could do even though its leadership almost uniformly anticipated the kind of president he would be. There's really not been a whole lot. You know, some of the details may have been a bit more shocking, but the tenor and direction of his presidency, his disregard for the Constitution, his racism, his sexism, um, the fact that he would try to overturn the 2020 election. A lot of folks in the Republican Party expected that to happen, and still they could not stop the nomination. That, to me, is the dire threat to our democracy, that we've given up on political parties as part of the representative system that we have for our democracy. And instead, we're deferring to primaries in the misbegotten belief that they're democratic, which they are not. But is this unique to the United States? News uh, indicates that Marine Le Pen uh, did quite well in the French primaries, despite the fact that she's the daughter of a uh, a man who was an outspoken Nazi sympathizer, and she has been a strong supporter of Vladimir Putin. Okay, so what's going on in France is a different type of electoral system. That that is a runoff system in which all the parties run together, all the candidates. And then the top two finishers go to the the final round. What we have in America is that each party has a primary election. And the turnout for it is is much lower than what we see in France. Um, What happens in America in terms of the the deference and the power of primary elections in parties is unique. We don't see that anywhere else. Um, Everywhere else that has a democracy Uh, treats the political parties as the main uh, political feature of their democracy. And the idea that political parties would be selecting candidates through different processes, but the party would be the decider, that's considered democratic. In America, we have developed this, in my view, peculiar idea that um, we're going to defer to a small number of ideologues to make that choice and that political parties can't be trusted. Well, most other countries have a number of political parties that cover the full range of the political system. Ours history has been largely one of a two-party system, which I guess forces the major parties to include people as different as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ted Cruz in the same party as Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in the same party as Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, no, I think that's... Um, that's true. You know, there are certainly you know some countries like Britain where you largely have a conservative and a Labour Party, and then the parties control their um, their nominations. And if you're in government, um, meaning that you're in the majority, and therefore the cabinet is is part of your government, and you vote against the uh, cabinet's 
policy proposal, particularly the, the main proposals, you will be denied the nomination next time. And that'll be a decision of the party. We don't have that. And so, you know, Donald Trump is is kind of chosen by the activists in 2016. The party has no, none of that power. Um, and it still doesn't, even though he is pushing uh, an agenda that could hurt Republicans in the midterm elections. They, Mitch McConnell would be delighted if Donald Trump disappeared. He thinks he can win majorities, not only the House, but the Senate. And Trump is pushing and using the nomination process to try to uh, um, put candidates he favors, but who may not win the election. There were no political parties at first. Was that what most of the founders would have preferred? Absolutely. There was a there was a fear that political parties would become either majoritarian, that is, they would represent the landless farmers. Um, they were fearful that they might represent different religious groups. Um, and so you had people like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Hamilton, thinking of political parties as evil. Um, and a very interesting thing happens, and this is a, a theme in our history, which is after George Washington serves two terms, he leaves office in 1796 and there's an election. The election is his vice president, John Adams, versus the uh, former secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson. And Adams wins in a, in a closely fought, uh, quite heated election. And um, Jefferson leaves that race just absolutely bitter and reverses field. All of a sudden, he's weaponizing political parties and using them to uh, create what was known as or is known as the Revolution of 1800, just a mass turnout uh, for that presidential election, which um, shows a 50 percent increase in terms of the vote uh, and that Jefferson wins. Um, and this begins part of the process by which America locks in on um, mass mobilizing political parties. That was not a pattern we saw abroad or anywhere. Um, and it's, you know, begins to form the foundation of our political process. Didn't Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren play an important role in developing the political system at that time? Yeah. And as I said, um, Andrew Jackson was a, a political um, pioneer in a lot of ways. Um, he increased uh, turnout threefold to well over a million uh, votes. And again, these are white males. Um, and, you know, that's extraordinary. But he was, uh, you know, just a, um, you know, someone today we would consider uh, to be um, you know, appalling and uh, and there were folks back in the, in the 19th century who shared that view of them. In any case, Jackson and Martin Van Buren, who had been a political leader in, in Albany, New York, um, ratchet up the use of political parties. And, um, and, and Jackson is able to revenge um, a very seedy loss in 1824 when he had the popular vote, he had more electoral college votes, but he didn't get the majority. And so went into the U.S. House of Representatives where John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, mm. cut some pretty seedy deals 
uh, and he was selected by the House as the president. Um, Jackson then goes all in on um, modernizing political parties. Van Buren, who's kind of the political genius of that time, um, is the one who kind of puts together this this new um, powerful structure for getting for reaching voters and getting them out to the polls. Um, and after that, we begin to see a whole new style of politics because of the Jacks, what's known as the Jacksonian era. Um, as Jackson's going through this, he pioneers the idea of um, party convention, which hadn't existed before. And part of that was to try to create loyalty to the political party by saying the people, this myth of the people, would choose who the nominee was going to be. And that was always a bit of a uh, canard because Jackson um, was choosing who was going to be at the convention and making that selection. But it does begin this process that would expand during the 19th century. You cite four features that the Constitution had that uh, were included to keep citizens in their place. What were they? Well, as I said, um, you know, there was a, a, um, an effort to filter out uh, citizens' electoral college vote, the state selection of senators. That's certainly a very, you know, kind of a theme. Um, and it was part of uh, Madison's effort to make sure that um, this, what he saw, excessive democracy in the states after the declaration would stop. They also included... Um, a uh, power of the national government, which was shocking uh, to folks back in the 1780s. This idea that the federal government, this new national government, would be the supreme power of the land. There was, you know, the thinking was was that power was resided in the states and jealously guarded. I mean, states like Virginia were were powerhouses, and all of a sudden, for power to go to this new national government uh, was um, Repugnant. Aren't we many, still fighting that fight? We're still fighting that fight. Exactly. Though, you know, sometimes in different in different terms. The other part is Jackson's or excuse me, uh, Madison's attack on the economic um, progressivism of the states. Um, and we saw, you know, these rules that you read in the Constitution about the federal government controlling the printing of money. Um you know, that is a, you know, that's often you know recited um, in Article One, um, Section Eight. It's just kind of listed, but it was a profound change, and it has enormous implications in terms of uh, stripping states of this power that had been used after the Declaration to try to restore some of the economic uh, position of farmers and laborers. You're listening to WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Vote for me, vote for me. I want the nomination for the presidency. Vote for me, vote for me. If I am elected, this is how it will be. I cut your tags in half, I make the rushes laugh, I feed the hungry people everywhere. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Lawrence R. Jacobs. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, 
you can receive a free copy of the book we're discussing, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's given then the number to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it during today's show and we will be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 contribution uh, in the name of Leonard Lopate at Lodge, and we thank you very much. Uh, you, you list a history of political reforms since the late 18th century that you argue have weakened democracy, widened political inequality and racial disparities, and encouraged political polarization. Were they done consciously in that regard? You know, a lot of these reforms and things like introducing the direct primary hmm were done um, under the flag of we are revitalizing American democracy. We're giving power to the people. And can, wait, can I interrupt you for a second? I'm sure there are listeners out there saying, why? what's wrong with a direct primary? After all, I want to have a say in who runs for office. Yeah, I understand that. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that um, it's, it's, you know, it's expanded in such important role. But... This requires kind of us to put on our thinking caps. The, um, the turnout of Democrats and Republicans for presidential primaries is about one quarter to one third. It's about half that for midterm elections. And so, yes, let's give power to the people. But look how, how few people are turning out. And who are those people? Those people do not represent the country. And so if you want to know where Donald Trump came from, he came from this system. And before Donald Trump, it was nearly George Wallace who won uh, or was in, on a path to potentially winning the 1972 Democratic uh, nomination for president because of these similar dynamics in which um, a relatively small number of voters in a crowded primary are able to exert excessive influence. Here's another way to think about it. Donald Trump in 2016 was nominated with what is the equivalent of about 6% of the general electorate. And so you head to the polls in you know, November 2016 and you're a Republican. Your choice is Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. And many Republicans did not like Donald Trump. They did not trust Donald Trump. They were he never was the most, He was the most unpopular candidate that uh, we've had in the modern era with polling, but they had no choice. And we've now have a system where, you know, 45 or more percent of Republicans just rally around their party's candidate, uh, regardless of that candidate's characteristics. And so that this is the problem. Yes, I want to have the, a say, but it's now being exploited by a relatively small number of ideologues. But you know that American commentators have been preoccupied by a fear of the popular vote since the 18th century. Yeah, that's that is true. And somewhere along the line, um, and I would say it began during the progressive era, that you know concern about um, protecting the procedures and the rules of our democracy and the Constitution gave way to this. I would say myth of the people, give power to the people. Um, and it has produced 
a profoundly unequal system, one that has opened the door to demagogues uh, to walk in like Donald Trump. Uh, we have to really, I think, take a hard look at what we are describing as democratic. The primary system is not democratic. It is anti-democratic. Well, are you arguing that the history of political reforms since the late 18th century have done little to reform the system? Has a reform been a negative process? Well, I wouldn't say that uh, across the board. I think there have been very important uh, political reforms, most notably um, the right of women and people of color to vote. The 19th Amendment, a, et cetera. Yeah, right. Those have been historic wins that required mass movements um, and will continue to require it because we have a long way to go. But I do think in particular the the primary that was put in place or introduced in the progressive era has been a is a dire threat. Now, let me just say this. When when a few reformers like Robert LaFollette from Wisconsin introduced the idea of a direct primary, and it was to take power away from the party machine that had come to dominate um, the conventions. Um, LaFollette was successful in introducing it, and it was picked up in about you know a dozen or two dozen states um, up until the early 1920s. But then there was a backlash and part of that backlash were from reformers in the states and cities, but also leading thought uh, figures like um, uh, Robert Crowley and Walter Littman, who said, and I think this is prophetic, they were writing and saying the primary is dangerous because it opens the door to demagogues. It makes it harder to build coalitions um, that can stretch across a diverse uh, country and state and city. Um, and I think those things have really come to pass. Um, the key moment Wait, And that was, was all before television commercials. Yeah, it was fought. It was fought at the street corners. It was fought at, um, at you know, these reformer events. Uh, you know, the, the, the progressive era is really uh, one of the most interesting periods in American history and Hotly debated today. Well, wasn't the um, creation of the Progressive Party in 1912 an attempt to improve our democracy? Did it have little effect? Well, it it it, it had an effect, and then it faded. And um, part of it was um, we saw Teddy Roosevelt, who had tried to win the nomination back, but was beat back by Taft. He went over to the uh, Progressive Party, which La Follette had helped to found and build. And LaFollette wanted the nomination of the Progressive Party for himself, and he played a role in scuttling um, a Teddy Roosevelt's campaign. And after that election, um, the party more or less faded um, into history. So it, it had a short-lived um, uh, moment. You say the problems have accelerated in the last few decades. In what ways and, and why do you think that is? I think if we look at um, the things that most concern us about our democracy, probably the top of the list is we had a president, Donald Trump, who tried to uh, reverse an election. We now have the nomination of candidates who are committed to that big lie. Um, we may have uh, um, more than a several candidates for secretary of state offices 
which um, helped to control the election uh, process, um, who also subscribe to the big lie. And we can't stop it because these folks are coming through a nomination process that's controlled by relatively few um, ideologues. And so the concerns that you know, many of us might have of and, and shock that the Republican Party would be nominating candidates who uh, have deep questions about our democracy and about even uh, respecting the outcome of elections, it's been subverted. And so that, to me, is one of the most dire consequences of this you know, ill-considered um, adoption of uh, the primary system. But primaries also contributed to polarization and particularly the fact that the Republican Party's agenda has moved increasingly to the right. But we have uh, a, a growing number of people of color in Congress, and I would assume that uh, they are there because they won primaries in their districts. Yes, that, that's true, and I think that's a, a, a obviously that's an important accomplishment. And that would uh, not have happened in the past if uh, the party bosses were deciding who was to run. Okay, let's talk about that because uh, that's a familiar criticism of uh, political parties before the primaries. The, the the shift to the primary system was pioneered by the Democratic Party. It was a um, U.S. senator who Hubert Humphrey selected as the chair of the Democratic Party, Fred Harris, and the, the head of the reform group at the Democratic uh, Party, uh, George McGovern. Now, they said the Democratic Party was broken and they needed to be um, really profoundly uh, reorganized. But let's look at the Democratic Party um, in the 1960s. It had passed civil rights legislation, important civil rights legislation, and not just one bill. It was a series of bills regarding voting rights, fair housing, and more. It also passed the beginning of America's um, you know, welfare state, um, Medicare, passed during the Democratic um, uh, era in the um, mid-1960s. Medicaid, ditto. Uh, the expansion of Social Security. All these things were happening by, this, this, by the Democratic Party. And just to get to the point about race, the 1964 Democratic Convention had had a horrible um, um, uh, conflict between the Mississippi Democratic um, Freedom Party that um, had shown up in Atlanta in 1964 and demanded they be seated instead of an all-white uh, slate of Democratic delegates. And it was a big battle. And essentially, um, the white delegates were seated because they had been selected through the process that existed. But the Democratic Party said this will never happen again. And within of that four-year period, the Democratic Party integrated its, um, its party delegates. Um, and then you've got leaders coming along like Barbara Mikulski, who becomes a very important party leader in the 70s, who is expanding the number of, um, of people of color and women um, and indigenous 
uh, folks into the Democratic Party. So I don't buy that the, the Democratic Party was kind of um, this uh, calcified, out of touch institution. Did it have ref- you know, change that needed to be done? Absolutely. But what replaced it is really something quite different. And once the Democrats move to a primary system, the Republicans do as well. And then I think we're, we're off the deep end. My guest on today's Let It Low Pit at Large is Lawrence R. Jacobs, who's written a book called Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History, published by Oxford University Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So are you saying that increasing the influence of party bosses or superdelegates would be more democratic and less likely to lead to a candidate like Trump reaching the White House? So I think it's important to appreciate the um, the the role of party officials um, and elected officials. For the most part, they want to be in the majority. That's their number one goal. And particularly the, the party leaders, um, they, they want to be successful. And success is controlling the White House, controlling Congress, controlling state legislatures and the governor's seats. That's what their orientation is toward. And they are also in the position to evaluate a candidate like Donald Trump in a way that um, uh, primary voters may be unlikely to. Um, And so you had all these folks in the Republican Party in 2016 saying Donald Trump is unfit for office. It's a kind of like a peer review. You know, we're evaluated in our workplaces by peers um, at least some workplaces. And that's what we're talking about here is putting people who have um, experience, who know the candidates intimately, um, who are oriented to how can we build a majority to give them a bit more say. Now, I'm not saying that the primary system ought to be uh, ended. I don't think that's feasible. And I'm not sure it's necessarily a good idea. Although you are calling for a new politics. I'm using your phrase. Yeah, I'm calling for new politics, and I think that can be achieved if we have an honest conversation about the primary system and not just kind of um, capitulate to those who claim it's democratic. Um, look, I have a lot of respect for someone like Bernie Sanders. I think he's 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 been a remarkable um, you know force in our politics. But when Bernie Sanders raises two hundred eleven million dollars in twenty twenty and focuses on a primary campaign almost exclusively. Um, And his supporters then are putting all their energy into this internal Byzantine process. And the nomination is over, and that $211 million for the most part is gone. And the the democratic energy of all those people has been dissipated. The question I'm raising is, is that the best use of democratic um, vigor and engagement? I just I think, you know, put, we're putting all our eggs in one basket. Well, your team at the University of Minnesota started to work with frontline officials in 2009. What was your goal in, in that process? So about a dozen years ago, I started to look around at the um, administrative structure that supports our democracy. And I realized that there really wasn't a, a university based training program for frontline election officials. And so we started one. It's called the Certificate in Election Administration. 
we train you know students who want to pick up a career in election administration as well as folks who are already in election administration in kind of you know a to z of what it means to be an election administrator um and this is a pioneering program it's taught online um and the enrollment has been soaring and you know i guess that's like a an upside to the 2020 election people are realizing all of a sudden hey wait a second election officials are very important and we saw in 2020 despite everything that donald trump did and all of his supporters that the election administration was almost entirely um, honest, follow the laws, follow the rules. 90 judges, more than 90 judges, including some who had been appointed by Republicans, reviewed what they did and said, yeah, we're, we agree with certifying this election. Um, so I think that is very important. We've got to put more time and thought into the, uh, the kind of nitty gritty of what it means to have a democracy. Well, we've we taken only it have for granted. We only have a little less than two minutes to go, and I was going to ask you another question that obviously is going to require a longer answer, but hasn't it been suggested that there are important factors, other important factors in today's elections, uh, like social media algorithms, the Citizens United campaign finance decision, race-baiting precedents that were set in earlier campaigns? Absolutely, and I'm not saying— one minute. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm not saying that the primary is the only thing, but— if you look at this in a historic context, which is what I'm, I'm arguing, what you'll see is that once we move to the primaries, it creates a fertile environment for money, for social media, for um, you know, the far right activists to exercise their influence. Before that, they were being checked by the political parties. And in other democracies, you don't see quite the same influences because the parties do have more of a role. So um, social media algorithms uh, are irrelevant to all of this? No, I think it's very relevant. But again, they're relevant. They fit in with the primaries, don't they? Yeah, exactly. They're very relevant because we have embraced this um, out-of-control primary system because it's very atomized. It's just up to the individual. The parties have really no control over it. Um, If you look in Britain and France and Germany, they don't have quite the same trouble we do because there is a party structure and it limits the impact of money um, and social media and race baiting. What about Canada? Canada, again, you know, it's a parliamentary system, um, not the same sort of, um, you know, um, anarchistic anti um, um, constitution candidates that we're seeing. And we're going to see more of them. Donald Trump is not he's not the first and he's by no means the last. There is a now a gate that has been opened for demagogues and extremists. Hmm. And that gate was opened by the direct primaries. We so need how do to take we a hard that? look at that. In, in one minute, how do we change that? Well, I think one thing we have to do is start restraining the uh, elites in politics. We've been too uh, forgiving. And part of that is increasing uh, the the um, superdelegates on pledged delegates. I think we also need to take a hard look at the number of elections. We have over half a million at the municipal, local, state, and federal level, and it's exhausting citizens. It's why we get such low turnout. In fact, 
some of the, some of these elections, there's almost no one turning out. So more elections here than any than most other countries or all other countries. Yeah, I mean, you know, number of elections in the U.S. half a million. You know, in Germany and and elsewhere in Europe, it's like half a dozen over a number of years. Well, in Russia, um, there are hardly any, and we know what <laughs> happens there. Right. So I think we need to have fewer elections so that citizens can engage more um, and 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 take the decisive action that we need in our elections. And that's what you're calling a new politics? Well, it's part of it. I mean, um, I, I write two chapters on it. I think mm. it's very important that we, we start putting more energy into mobilizing marginal groups of voters. It's one of the reasons why I'm so critical of, of, of the 211 million that Bernie Sanders put into one um, you know, nomination process in 2020. That money can be used instead to try to get voters engaged at the local levels. Um, there, you know, parties largely skip the marginal voters because they anticipate them not voting. Well, it's a, it's a circular argument. If you don't reach out to them and try to mobilize, we they're not going to leave vote. It there, unfortunately. But my great thanks to you, Lawrence R. Jacobs, is founder and director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, and holds the Walter F. and Joan Mondale Chair for Political Studies at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. He's also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and his book that we've been discussing is "Democracy Under Fire: Donald Trump and the Breaking of American Democracy" from Oxford University Press. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign out today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Break. Of American, pres- of American history by Lawrence R. Jacobs. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. Either way, please give us that call right now to keep this station, the only one that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us tomorrow when my guest will be Keith O'Brien discussing his new book, Paradise Falls. We'll see you then.